1948 is simply a large spike in the sort of course of events which begins in the 1880s. Another spike is in 1967, um, but it's an ongoing process that never has stopped. Uh, as we see until today, the loss of land continues through outright confiscation and sequestration by the Israeli government of Palestinian land. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. And welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm your co-host, Nora Barrows-Friedman with Asa Wynn-Stanley. So we've got a really great episode today. Um... We have an extended interview with uh, the the wonderful scholar and analyst, writer, author, essayist, uh, Joseph Massad. Tell us a little bit about who Joseph is for our listeners who don't know and um, and what we'll be talking about. Okay, so uh, Joseph Massad, uh, professor of modern Arab politics and intellectual history at Columbia University. He is one of the world's... Well, I personally would say the world's leading Palestinian intellectual. Um, he is really has a groundbreaking analysis of Palestine and the history of the Palestinian struggle. And, you know, if you haven't read anything by Joseph Massad and, you know, you consider yourself knowledgeable on Palestine, I would really question that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he's just... He's, 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 it's uh i mean you'll see in this in this interview we have it's really brilliant essentially you know and uh, we at ei are big fans of joseph massad yeah. and you know his you know his work is our intellectual foundation in a lot of ways so he really is somebody who you should be paying attention to essentially in a sentence joseph massad is the exploder of myths when it comes to Israel. Uh, I think that's probably the best way to put it. So I'm not going to say anything more. I'm, I think we'll just get into it, right? <laughs> Let's go for it. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we, we invited him on the show today to talk about the the, the larger context of what, what people talk about when they talk about Israeli annexation and what annexation means, the foundations of Israel as a, as a Zionist settler colony, um, and and what that means for justice for Palestinians and for Palestinian liberation. Um, so yeah, without uh, further ado, let's go right to that interview with Professor Joseph Massad. And in the notes um, that we publish along along with this podcast, we'll um, provide a few links to his most recent columns and essays. Um, so uh, yeah, let's go right to Joseph. We're very honored to be joined today by Joseph Massad, Professor of Modern Arab Politics and Intellectual History at Columbia University in New York. He's the author of many articles and essays, and his most recent book is Islam in Liberalism. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So we wanted to talk about ongoing Israeli annexation in the context of these new, uh, very vague plans that were supposed to be announced on July 1st. It's now a few days later when we're recording this, and, and it looks like any sort of formal announcement might be made sometime in the future. 
Um, but what is clear is that Israel's plans have always been about annexation, maximalist expansion, further settler colonization, and increased expulsion or forced transfer of Palestinians. Uh, and this is all happening with the full and open blessing of the United States and, and of Canada and the UK and the European Union, although they just pretend to be mildly concerned about the annexation plans while continuing to never hold Israel actually accountable. Um, nevertheless, Joseph, much is being made of Netanyahu's annexation plan. It's being presented as a major break with past history and the so-called peace process. Uh, European governments have said that they condemn the plan, and more than a thousand European parliamentarians have signed a letter calling it, quote, fatal to the prospects of Israeli-Palestinian peace. You've written a lot about the historical continuity of the gradual annexation over more than a century of Palestinian land by the Zionist movement and later by the State of Israel. Could you explain for our listeners why the latest Netanyahu plan uh, is not a break with that history, but instead a continuation of it? Yeah, indeed. Not only is it not a break, it is uh, uh, hardly uh, a major event, uh, aside from the legality or illegality of it, which also is in line with the general um, illegal measures that Israel and previously the Zionist movement um, had taken. But perhaps we should go back a bit in history um, to just sort of shed some light on this question. Um, while the Zionist movement, of course, from the onset in the 1890s had um, planned to establish a state in Palestine, what it wanted to do with the Palestinians and with Palestine geographically remained sort of uh, open to all kinds of debates and discussions, even if the core of establishing a Jewish state um, uh, was already sort of uh, accepted and determined. Uh, it's only the borders and the geography and the population that was being debated. One of the interesting things that we see uh, once the British conquered Palestine um, uh, at the end of 1917 during World War I um, is we begin to see all kinds of discussions about what was called then cantonization. This is what the Zionists had suggested. It was more personalities within the Zionist movement, nothing official at that time, that spoke of establishing Jewish cantons in Palestine, basically to rename the colonial settlements that European Jews were establishing at that, at that time under the auspices of the British government um, and with the financing of the Zionist movement. By 1929, we begin to see this uh, debate on cantonization um, adopted by several uh, officials at the British government. Indeed, by 1932, it begins to be contemplated by the colonial office. So by the time, the, so this discussion of the Swiss model of cantonization in Palestine without sort of a, a separate sovereignty for a Jewish state was, you know, seriously debated, and even though it took a back seat by 1937, given the fact that the Zionists had already been preparing for what they called partition. So in 1937, you know, amidst the major anti-British and anti-Zionist Palestinian revolt, which began in 36 and continued to 1939, the British uh, dispatch uh, the Peel Commission to study the situation. And the Peel Commission, even though did not have um, the charge, the legal charge, to look into the question of partition uh, would propose not only partition, and this is a British government plan, but also that partition would necessitate the expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from the projected Jewish state. 
Now, ultimately, by 1938, the British government realized that this was not within the purview of the commission, and the partition proposition of the Peel Commission was rejected. But the maps that were used at that time, provided by British and Zionist experts to the Peel Commission, became the basis for the 1947 United Nations partition plan. So um, this was not just sort of a, 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 the kinds of maps that ended up in a colonial drawer somewhere but actually uh, ended up being activated effectively um, in 1947. Um, and remember, of course, the British at that time, I think, abstained on the General Assembly resolution calling for the partition of Palestine, just as they would abstain later on on the admission of Israel to the United Nations. Um, we can talk about this later, but um, at the moment what I want to say is the, so the question of cantonization was kind of the entry point, at least as far as discussions with the British, in preparation for the establishment of a Jewish state. Then that, that quickly moved to partition. And then we begin to see the question of annexation uh, very clearly undertaken um, during the 1947-1948 war. As you know, the, by the 30th of November 1947, the day after the United Nations General Assembly passed a non-binding resolution, by the way, only Security Council resolutions were binding, but this was a non-binding resolution for the partition of Palestine. Uh, Zionist militias began to attack Palestinian villages and towns in the territory that was considered a part of the Jewish state by the partition plan. That then, so the war would begin the against the Palestinians, the Zionist invasion would begin, the expulsion of the Palestinians would begin, so much so, of course, that by uh, May 14th, 1948, um, half the Palestinian refugees, upwards of 400,000 people um, that would be expelled by the end of the war had already been expelled. Um, this is important, of course, because Israel often speaks of the so-called invasion of five, six, seven, eight Arab armies, allegedly. Um, we should, of course, make it clear that um, essentially there were uh, four Arab armies that engaged in the fighting. Most of them did not invade Israel at all, but rather actually tried to take positions in the areas that were uh, selected by the General Assembly resolution for the Palestinian state. So the allegation that they invaded Israel is, in fact, an absolute lie. And so this is certainly, for example, the case um, with the Jordanian army, which was at the time under a British general. Um, the only territory that the Jordanian army went into that was not designated as the Arab state was East Jerusalem, which was supposed to be under UN jurisdiction anyway, and it was not part of a projected Jewish state. Suffice it to say that by the end of the war, as you know, um, most people know, by January 1949, Israel had already occupied over 60% of the territory allocated for the Palestinian state. Now, this presented a problem uh, for the United Nations, especially when Israel began to apply to be recognized by the United Nations as a member, or rather to join as a member. They submitted, an, um, I think, an application in October 48. The United Nations uh, delayed looking into it and would not finally look into it until May of 1949. Now, this is very important. When the United Nations decided to admit Israel as part as a member of the United Nations on May 11th, 1949, it did so based on two resolutions. 
it said basically that based on the, the resolution 181, meaning the partition plan that was uh, 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 issued in, in, on November 29th, 1947, and the resolution 194, which was issued in December 1948, which dealt with the Palestinian refugees repatriation and compensation, that it would recognize Israel in view of these two resolutions, meaning that it is these were the borders because there was a big discussion, in fact, in the General Assembly about three questions. One was, will Israel be upholding the requirements of Resolution 194 in relation to uh, the repatriation and compensation of the Palestinian refugees? And would Israel go to the boundaries and the borders that were allocated to it by the United Nations Resolution 181, the partition plan, and three, the question of um, Israel's occupation of West Jerusalem, which was United Nations territory. So not only was it an occupation of 60% of the territory allocated for the Palestinian state, it was also uh, in violation of the United Nations uh, own resolutions by occupying United Nations territory. Now, um, as a result of this, of course, the, um, uh, there was a, uh, a mediator dispatched by the United Nations at the time, a Swedish uh, personality by the name of Count Bernadotte, whom the Israelis would soon assassinate. Um, the Swedish government would actually claim that it was Israeli government agents who killed him, uh, while uh, several years later, uh, the terrorist organization Lehi uh, one of whose leaders was um, Yitzhak Shamir, who would later become Israel's prime minister, made the decision to assassinate, according to Leahy's own uh, confessions, to assassinate Count Fort Bernadotte. The only reason why I bring this up is because as a result of the assassination of Bernadotte, Resolution 194 in December of 1948 that dealt with the refugees also decided to establish the United Nations Conciliation Commission on Palestine. This conciliation commission was supposed to continue the work of Bernadotte and began to try to set up some form of dialogue between um, the, the, the different uh, parties, Israel and the Arab states, um, ultimately leading to a conference in Lausanne in May 1949, around the same time as the United Nations was considering and debating Israel's admission to the United Nations. And during those negotiations with the Arab states, the Arab states, in fact, many, some of whom, like King Abdullah of Jordan, were already sort of collaborating with uh, uh, the Zionists since the 1920s, and by that point were already as a result of being uh, sort of uh, having the British as their patron, as his patron, to accommodate a more lasting peace agreement with the Israelis. The point being that not only Jordan, but also Syria, Lebanon and Egypt, all four countries participated in the Lausanne conference, in fact, gave up on the Palestinian right of return to the areas that became uh, Israel and within the territory assigned for Israel according to Resolution 181. However, they demanded that Israel take, allow the Palestinian refugees to return to those areas that belong to the Palestinian state, which it had occupied during the war. Um, the Israelis, of course, refused. And this is very important because uh, as the United Nations was considering admitting Israel as a member, they invited its ambassador at the time, a fellow, a South African fellow by the name of Aubrey Solomon, born in Cape Town. Later, he renamed himself as Abba Ibn and became um, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. He made the argument 
to the General Assembly that the General Assembly needs to recognize or to admit Israel as a member. And Israel is not beholden to these boundaries for the arm that, that the armistice lines uh, were drawn. However, it would negotiate on all these boundaries with each specific country um, with whom it has boundaries, meaning with Jordan, with, e with Egypt, with Syria, and with Lebanon. Yet, at the same time, as this was uh, unfolding um, uh, with the General Assembly, the Lausanne conference was taking place and the Israelis refused, and not only did they refuse to um, negotiate on uh, these boundaries, they proposed, in fact, to annex the territories on the Egyptian and the Syrian side. The Arab uh, governments, of course, refused, and the Lausanne conference um, indeed uh, 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 failed. Um, also, uh, Abba even claimed that uh, Israel was very open to re-establishing international UN control over West Jerusalem, provided also Jordan did the same for the part of Jerusalem, the smaller East, you know, East Jerusalem, the old city part of Jerusalem that it came to control after the war. And the question of the refugees, which the Israelis, of course, claimed uh, would have to be done also once the issue of boundaries had been settled uh, and the issues of Jerusalem. And all of this could happen after the United Nations admitted Israel as a member. So all the arguments that the Israeli representative put forth, in fact, he put them forth precisely on the assumption that Israel would not annex the 60% of the Palestinian state it had already conquered, nor would it annex West Jerusalem, which was the United Nations territory. As we know, Israel soon would move all the Zionist uh, political apparatus from Tel Aviv to West Jerusalem, which it would declare as its capital afterwards. And um, all these, uh, uh, all the parts of uh, the Palestinian state it had occupied at that time uh, would be also annexed as part of Israel. But, but this, of course, is not recognized by international law. Today, until today, the only legal document for the UN, for, for, for Israel to be a member of the United Nations, to be recognized by the international community, is that letter of recognition or the letter of membership, which is based on uh, UN Resolution 181 and 194, which means on those boundaries. However, as we would see subsequently, the Palestinian uh, 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 leadership and the Arab leadership stopped demanding that Israel vacate these occupied territories, ceding, at least rhetorically, if not legally, the right for Israel to annex uh, these territories illegally in contravention with international law. Um, so uh, as a result, uh, the annexation begins early on. Uh, as you can see this, of course, we see more of that happening once Israel uh, launches a tripartite war against Syria, Jordan, and Egypt in 1967, once it occupies East Jerusalem, it uh, also immediately annexes East Jerusalem in 67 de facto, and finally it uh, uh, decides to do so de jure in 1980. The United Nations, of course, also at that time, in August of 1980, uh, passed a, a Security Council Resolution 478, uh, which condemned uh, the illegal annexation of East Jerusalem which, by the way, again, is United Nations territory, according to Resolution 181. Um, another aspect of this, of course, is the armistice lines between Syria and, uh, and Israel that were established at the end of the war. 
Uh, as you might know, uh, a lot of these armistice lines included what is called uh, demilitarized zones or DMZs. Throughout this period of the 1950s, what the Israelis would begin to do, even though the DMZ and the United Nations had observers at the time, uh, were no man's land, the Israelis began slowly to bring in their colonial settlers with tractors to plant all these lands alongside the, the Golan Heights and appropriate them slowly. At that time, there were some skirmishes between the Syrian army and the Israeli army until the Israelis slowly actually took over all the DMZ and essentially annexed it. It became part of Israel. There was never even a question um, uh, about this. So the recent decision about uh, annexing uh, allegedly 30% of the West Bank um, is hardly new at all and is hardly uh, 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 the first illegal uh, kind of action that the Israeli government would take. But it's actually, you know, one of so many, a uh, concatenation, if you will, of illegal measures of the acquisition of lands. Right. You've uh, brought us there back to, back 72 years to uh, what, you know, the foundation of the State of Israel. And, um, but you've also argued that this history of and you've shown us there how annexation is not a new thing although you know all the headlines at the moment by the middle east correspondents and so forth are about this terrible uh, annexation plan and it is terrible but there's a there seems to be a historical continuity there that they're they're really missing and but you've also argued it goes back even further than that and um every year palestinians all over the world uh, commemorate the Nakba, which is often understood um, by the Solidarity Movement in the West as well as a as a singular event in 1948, uh, in which about 800,000 Palestinians were expelled by Zionist militias. Um, and but you have argued that instead the Nakba isn't a thing of the past. Um, and it, in fact, is an ongoing event which began as far back as the 1880s and continues until literally today. Uh, in a 2008 essay that was published by us at the Electronic Intifada, you wrote that, quote, the Nakba is in fact much older than 60 years. At the time, it was the 60th anniversary of 1948. Uh, and it is still with us pulsating with life and coursing through history by piling up more calamities upon the Palestinian people. I hold that the Nakba is a historical epoch that is 127 years old and is ongoing, unquote. Um, and in a more recent essay you wrote for us on uh, the future of the Nakba, it was called The Future of the Nakba, you wrote that, quote, if the Nakba's most salient features are the theft of Palestinian land and the expulsion of the Palestinians from the land, it would be most inaccurate to consider the Nakba as a discrete event that refers to the War of 1948 and its immediate aftermath. Rather, it should be historicised as a process which spanned the last 140 years, beginning with the arrival of the first Zionist conquerors to colonise the land in the early 1880s. Could you expand on this point, Joseph, and explain why this is so important to understand this history in the light of this current annexation plan? Yes, indeed. I mean, I, th I think often the Nakba has been kind of reified uh, precisely as this discrete event, as, as you've said, uh, of 1948, rather than an ongoing process in the sense that Israel has not stopped 
uh, its expulsion of Palestinians off their lands, whether inside 1948 or outside of 1948 uh, in the 1967 territories. Um, and, um, and of course, the, the, the issue of expulsion of populations was not even limited to the Palestinians, as uh, you may know, in 1978, um, in the first Israeli invasion of Lebanon, um, Israel caused about a quarter million refugees in southern Lebanon. And, and by 1982, in the second invasion, it caused another half million refugees of Lebanese and Palestinians in Lebanon alone. During the uh, so-called war of attrition between Egypt and Israel between 68 and 1970, Israel caused the, the, the displacement of one million Egyptian refugees from all the towns alongside the canal, the Suez Canal, after it occupied uh, the Sinai. So um, the, the, the issue of displacement of populations um, uh, exceeds even uh, uh, the calamities that Israel has visited on the Palestinians. But the argument that I tried to put forth is to show that um, perhaps 1948 is an interesting threshold to uh, address um, uh, uh, the, the difference between legal and illegal uh, expulsion of Palestinians. So, for example, in the 1880s, as uh, the early Zionists, and subsequently in the 1890s, after the establishment of the Zionist movement, began to establish their settler colonies in Palestine, they would establish them on land that, that contained Palestinian villages. Um, at the time, of course, uh, the uh, Ottoman Empire, as a result of a British and French pressure, began to modernize its uh, law, especially its laws, especially with, with regards to land ownership. So after 1858, uh, part of its new laws was to privatize land, to introduce private property in Palestine. This allowed a lot of uh, 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 sort of absentee landlords from outside of Palestine, from the region, or from outside the countryside. So some from Beirut, from Damascus, or Aleppo, or even Jerusalem or Nablus would buy a lot of agricultural land on which existed uh, a number of Palestinian villages. Um, the Palestinian villagers were too scared to register land in their name out of fear of the ongoing taxation of the Ottoman Empire and out of concern that their children would be conscripted in the ongoing Ottoman wars in Europe, which were very, very many uh, in the first and second half of the 19th century. So as a result, these absentee landlords, merchants basically, were able to acquire some of that land and later would sell it to colonial settlers. Um, they sold it to German Christian settlers who arrived in after 1860, but also they began to uh, uh, sell it to Jewish colonial settlers who began to arrive in the 1880s to set up initially agricultural colonies. Now, the important thing is that you begin, so there was a legal form now of purchasing land, and because you have title to this land, you have the legal right to uh, expel all the population or the peasants who live and work on that land. Now, this is something the absentee landlords did not do. The absentee landlords bought the land and continued to uh, work uh, with the peasants the way the Ottoman uh, authorities did, in the sense that they, instead of taxes now, they would come uh, in a feudal kind of a, a, a arrangement and take part of uh, the harvest um, at the end of the harvest season and uh, let the peasants, you know, uh, go about uh, with their own work and life. Now, the Zionists, of course, did not want the peasants. They only wanted the land. So they began to expel peasants. And this is where you begin to have resistance in the 1880s by Palestinian peasants to the Zionist uh, colonial settlers from Europe. 
uh, this would happen in uh, the area of, for example, the first colonial settlement that the, uh, uh, the Jewish colonists set up in uh, Petah Tikva, for example, there was a Palestinian resistance. Subsequently, in the 1890s, more Palestinian peasant resistance. And certain by 1901 up to 1908, you have multiple Palestinian peasant uprising against the ongoing expulsion, legal expulsion of Palestinian peasants off the land on which they've lived for hundreds of years, but because they didn't have title to that land, because there was no private property, and they uh, chose not to register their names afterwards, after private property was introduced uh, by law, um, they lost their lands and their homes and their belongings. Um, this would become even, uh, the situation would become even more atrocious. By 1921, the Zionist movement, uh, in fact, bought from a, a Beirut-based family, large swaths of land in uh, the Ibn Amir uh, meadow, what is called sometimes the Jizril Valley, or Marj Ibn Amir, as we say in Arabic, um, which resulted in the expulsion of uh, uh, hundreds of uh, uh, villagers from, uh, perhaps thousands from several villages, um, uh, which of course would in many ways uh, 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 begin the Palestinian national movement now anew against the British occupation's uh, conspiratorial uh, sort of dealings with the Zionists at the expense of the Palestinians. But by 1925, in fact, the British mandatory authorities would uh, issue a citizenship law for Palestine, as a result of which they expelled upwards of 40,000 Palestinians de facto, in the sense that there was at least 40,000 Palestinians working outside of Palestine, in Latin America, in Europe, um, who uh, were given anywhere between six months to a year, I think, to return to Palestine and to uh, uh, request uh, the new Palestinian nationality to replace their Ottoman passports. As, of course, we're speaking about 1925, uh, the trip from places like Chile or uh, Honduras, where so many Palestinians lived, or Bolivia, uh, who are, you know, basically temporary immigrants who are working and hoping to come home and reestablish themselves, were unable to come back. And um, a conservative number puts that at over 40,000 Palestinians who lost their right to be Palestinians as a result of this British law, which was engineered to facilitate the immigration of European Jewish colonial settlers into Palestine and grant them Palestinian citizenship very uh, shortly after their arrival. This, of course, facilitated the increase in the Jewish, in the, in the uh, colonial settler Jewish population in Palestine and, and the reduction of the number of Palestinians. So this is a kind of an indirect form of expulsion, if you will. Um, this will, of course, uh, uh, this would continue. Indeed, the expulsion would also be from workplaces. The, the Zionist movement began um, after 1926-1927, what it called a, a, a sort of the, the a, a pickets, boycott pickets, which would boycott Jewish businesses that employed Palestinians. As Palestinian peasants were pushed off their land and their villages, they could no longer even work their land. So they tried to find daily work at uh, privately owned Jewish farms, but the Zionist movement insisted on boycotting any Jewish farms that employs non-Jews as part of what it called its commitment to Hebrew labor, which is Zionist lingo for 
uh, apartheid and a complete sort of uh, 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 segregation of Jews from Palestinians uh, in their economy and political and social institutions. As a result, Palestinians began to be expelled even from their workplaces. Palestinians, of course, were the construction workers who built many of the buildings in Tel Aviv. Also, a lot of these construction companies would be picketed by um, uh, the Zionists to expel Palestinian workers who would be harassed as they leave their workplace. So uh, the expulsion was not only off the land initially, but also even when pa poor Palestinian peasants who were expelled off their land by the Zionist movement were denied uh, jobs elsewhere and would be uh, expelled from these jobs. This would continue, of course, until the uh, uh, Palestinian revolt of 1936, um, which, of course, was caused by um, all these measures and expulsions of the Palestinian uh, peasantry. So um, by the time you get to 1948, uh, during the war, but when Israel illegally uh, expels about 800,000 Palestinians, it would do so, of course, in contravention uh, and, 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 and contradiction with the United Nations Resolution 181. I should remind, uh, should remind you and remind us that Resolution 181, the partition plan, as uh, would be discussed during the debates to admit Israel as a member of the United Nations, Israel was reminded that the UN partition plan stipulated that neither the projected Arab state nor the projected Jewish state would be allowed to use ethnic cleansing or expel the population of the other nationality, nor would they be allowed to confiscate their lands or property. These were the terms of the partition plan. Of course, Israel did both. Not only did it uh, engage in deliberate ethnic cleansing uh, uh, and expelled the population from the area that was supposed to be Israel, and then the Palestinian, uh, uh, the territories that were supposed to be the Palestinian state, uh, but also confiscated all their property and put it at the disposal of uh, European Jewish colonial settlers um, who are uh, uh, now taking over Palestinian homes and lands across the land. So this was the largest, uh, uh, the first time we know of an illegal expulsion of Palestinians. Most of the expulsion that had taken place between 1880 and 1947 was legal, if absolutely uh, 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 tragic and catastrophic on the Palestinian peasantry as a result of European uh, encroachment on the Ottoman Empire and the change in its laws. But in 1947-48, we see an illegal expulsion of Palestinians, um, which of course would continue uh, up to 1949. Uh, uh, many people, for example, in the uh, town of Majdal or Majdal Asqalan, now uh, called Ashkelon, uh, would be expelled uh, by the Israeli army after the war ended. Um, as we know, uh, uh, Palestinians, of course, tried to some Palestinians tried to return home after the expulsion uh, uh, from Israel. Um, as we know from the Israeli uh, government and military archives, the Israeli government and army killed upwards of 5,000 Palestinians between 1948 and 1955 who attempted to return and uh, to whom it referred as, and I quote, infiltrators, unquote. So um, the ongoing, of course, expulsion would continue uh, uh, subsequent to that. We see this. Uh, happening, of course, in uh, 1967. Uh, we know that uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from the West Bank 
and from Gaza were expelled. And of course, uh, uh, over 100,000 people were also expelled from the Golan Heights. And remember also about 50,000 Gazans who were working or studying in Egypt were not allowed to come back. So this was also indirect expulsion of those. Similarly, Jerusalemites and other West Bankers who worked on the East Bank of the Jordan also lost their ability to go back. So there was, in addition to those that were directly driven out, we have all those that were indirectly not allowed to come back. So loss of loss of land, loss of, of, of uh, and, and expulsions would continue. Even for those Palestinians who remained in Israel, um, as you know, the Israelis would commit a horrific massacre against them in 1956 in a quiet little village called Kafar Qasim, where the Israeli army would go in and shoot unarmed civilians coming home from work in the field all day, killing about uh, uh, 60 of them or so. Um, also, the loss of land would continue in 1976, the so-called Judaization of the Galilee scheme, which confiscated the lands of Palestinian citizens of Israel um, as part of Israel's commitment to Jewish supremacy um, and to the differential uh, uh, rights and privileges um, that Jew Jewish citizens had over non-Jews. Um, and of course, you know, the, the, the small rate expulsion would continue after 1967. These would be all illegal expulsions by, uh, 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 in terms of international law and United Nations resolutions that have condemned such uh, uh, expulsions and called upon um, Israel to return the refugees. So if we think then of the Nakba as an event uh, or as, a, as, as, as describing uh, the loss of uh, Palestinian land and homes and the expulsion of Palestinians off their land and homes. Uh, 1948 is simply a large spike in this sort of course of events which begins in the 1880s. Another spike is in 1967, um, but it's an ongoing process that never has stopped. Uh, as we see until today, the loss of land continues through outright confiscation and sequestration by the Israeli government of Palestinian land, or uh, uh, the new term now, uh, annexation, or uh, sometimes Netanyahu uses the uh, language of extending sovereignty um, uh, over these territories. So um, in that sense, uh, the Nakba is that historical uh, arc that begins uh, with the arrival of the Zionist uh, settlers in the 1880s and continues until today. Yeah, the the, the language of uh, sovereignty is quite interesting because it's been kind of a watchword of the settler Likud right aspects of, uh, of, of the Israeli polity, which is sort of the Kahanist polity, really, which has kind of been, uh, you know, wholesale adopted by the Likud party, really. Um, but on the, the other side of the Zionist spectrum, we have the liberal Zionists and in all the Labour Zionists, uh, which are, you know, a small shadow of what they once were historically. But in recent months, uh, liberal Zionist organisations in the UK in particular um, have made quite a lot of noise about their opposition to the particular form of the annexation plan, which has been um, proposed uh, and put forward by the uh what what could be called i suppose the trump netanyahu annexation plan um but these are always framed as these these forms of opposition or ostensible opposition always framed as being what is a, a, about what is quote unquote best for israel um and none of these people really oppose the annexation of palestinian land which has been going on uninterrupted for decades um and a recent example was that uh, in haaretz 
the uh, the leading liberal Israeli newspaper, forty leading British uh, quote Zionists and passionately outspoken friends of Israel unquote as they called themselves. They wrote an open letter to the Israeli embassy in London, um, and in it they stated they opposed the plan, the annexation plan, on the basis that it would be, quote, incompatible with the notion of Israel as both a Jewish and democratic state, unquote, and that it would cause, quote, damage to Israel's international reputation and uh, a shot in the arm for the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement for Palestinian Rights. So what is meant when what is what, what what do they really mean when such liberal and so-called left-wing Zionists um, endorse the the Jewish and democratic nature of Israel, and why does this particular annexation plan endanger that as they see it? Um, I shall address uh, 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 these points, but I would like to have a preamble because this is a British context, and given the uh, a criminal British responsibility for had, what had transpired in Palestine. Uh, in the last uh, century or so. Um, it behooves us to know how the British actually behaved um, with regards to the question of boundaries and borders in yeah. 1948. Um, as you know, the, uh, unlike the American and the Soviet government, who immediately recognized Israel after its establishment, um, the Americans were the first to recognize it de facto, the Soviets were the first to recognize it uh, de jure. Um, and at the time, it's important to remember that mostly the people, the countries that recognized Israel were either um, um, uh, the allies of the Soviet Union that Stalin sort of insisted they follow his uh, uh, recognition of Israel, including Czechoslovakia and Poland. And, of course, uh, uh, France, Norway, uh, uh, Holland, um, perhaps an implacable enemy of the Palestinian people, Holland, since 1948, um, and consistently so, um, uh, uh, without any kind of contradiction or attempt to mollify that uh, hostility. But um, uh, the rest, of course, were all the settler colonies of the world. In the Americas, in Oceania, you know, everywhere, every single settler colony, in fact, uh, from even Haiti to Argentina uh, to Canada to New Zealand, they all recognized Israel. But the British, you would think the sponsor of the Zionist movement, did not. And there was a huge uh, debate at the time with Mr. Bevan. And of course, uh, even uh, Churchill in Parliament at the time was very upset about, you know, having been a, a certified, you know, a, a, an important Zionist and uh, an anti-Semite historically, which is, you know, they went hand in hand. Um, he wanted a recognition of Israel that was uh, quick. The British government at the time refused to do so until January 30th, 1949, which was about uh, uh, seven months afterwards. And the reason why it did, of course, even the de jure recognition that the British accorded Israel would have to wait till April 27th, 1950. The reason for both, the, the delay in both, was reservations concerning the issue of boundaries. Um, indeed, uh, the Americans would respond to the British argument that, well, you know, when the United States was established in 1776, our boundaries were not clear either. Um, recognizing the settler colonial nature of Israel and the United States with undefined boundaries. But the British refused to budge, in fact, and refused to believe in that they 
also advanced the legal argument that the Arab states who intervened on May 15, 1948, were not encroaching on any sovereign territory, especially because no, this territory was not within the purview of any government recognized by the world. And therefore, Palestine, the British argued, was uh, res nullius. It was a territory that belonged to nobody. So you could not actually accuse the Arab governments of having invaded a sovereign nation. This aside, of course, the British were very concerned about the reluctance of the United States under Zionist pressure not to recognize the independence of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, which was established as an independent country, or, which, or rather that obtained its independence, nominal independence from the British in May of 1946. The Americans refused to recognize it, as the Zionists at the time were still not sure on um, what the boundaries of their Jew projected Jewish state would be, and if Transjordan was going to be part of that. So as a result, there was pressure on the government not to recognize the independence of Jordan at that time, lest uh, there would come a time that the Zionists would argue that it should be part of a Jewish state. The British were very concerned about having, of course, taken Transjordan out of uh, the Balfour Declaration's pledge to give the Zionists a, a, a national home in Palestine. They were committed to remaining in control of Transjordan as a territory outside of a Zionist occupation. As a result, they began to uh, uh, negotiate with the Americans that they would only recognize the independence of Israel if the Americans recognized the independence of Jordan. Um, and this is, of course, after the war. Jordan, as you know, uh, had already um, uh, occupied eastern and central Palestine, which it would soon rename the West Bank. This is a, you know, a Jordanian-invented name, of course, for eastern and central Palestine. Um, and at the time, of course, uh, the Palestinians had set up an all-Palestine government uh, in uh, Gaza in September 1948 uh, to challenge uh, the Jordanian uh, uh, takeover of Eastern and Central Palestine. Many of the Arab states, including Egypt, of course, recognized the all-Palestine government in Gaza, um, and therefore the British were very concerned that the Jordanians may not be able to continue to control uh, Eastern and Central Palestine, as was the deal uh, King Abdullah had concluded with the Zionists before the war. Um, to make a, a, a long story short, finally, on Jan January 30th, 1949, uh, having reached, uh, reached an agreement with the Americans to recognize Jordan, on the 29th of January, 1949, the British recognized Israel. The next day, January 30th, the, American, the Americans recognized uh, Jordan uh, as an independent uh, country. Um, so th it gives you an idea about sort of the kind of negotiations going on uh, at that time. And it was all a matter of the question of boundaries. Um, and like I said, even when the, the British recognized Israel de jure in uh, 1950, uh, they did so with the reservations about the question of the final boundaries of the state. As you know, Israel until today does not have a constitution and does not have uh, 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 any recognized uh, borders. In fact, uh, Ben-Gurion, uh, early on, when asked about the borders of uh, the Jewish state, he said, you know, it is up to the Jewish people in the future to 
to decide what the borders of the state would be. So uh, as a, you know, as, as a predatory colonial settler state based on the expansion of its territory constantly, it is in its interest not to define what those borders were. So it is ironic to me that the British government, the sponsor of the Zionists, who had um, decided to delay its recognition of Israel based on Israeli illegal annexation of territories that were designated as part of the Palestinian state, um, uh, uh, you know, was basically the operative British position until uh, the early 1950s. Um, uh, subsequently, of course, the British would become again uh, Israel's major ally with whom they would uh, uh, invade Egypt in 1956. And all of this would become ancient history. But it is interesting to me that today elements in British society seem to be concerned about this question of uh, annexation, which they could use their own government's uh, history to bring to bear on, on, on this question. Uh, but of course, uh, they do not. Now, the question of, uh, which is the crux of what you uh, are asking, the issue of a Jewish and democratic state, of course, is a uh, 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 a, a bit of a, a contradiction in terms. As we know, um, uh, Israel could only become democratic through ethnic cleansing, meaning through establishing uh, Jewish demographic supremacy. And even that was not sufficient. So after the expulsion of the Palestinians from uh, the Jewish state, uh, both the, the uh, uh, Resolution 181 boundaries and the Armistice Line boundaries in 1949, um, Israel still uh, realized that it needed a large number of laws to protect Jewish colonial and racial privileges in the country, even if it was able to establish a Jewish majority through ethnic cleansing. So those uh, in the diaspora, or uh, 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 American or British Zionists, Christian or Jewish, who are concerned about the question of democracy in Israel, they are basically endorsing the ethnic cleansing of 1948 and the ongoing racist laws, there's probably 65 of which are on the books, that continue to operate inside Israel, um, uh, that through which this alleged Jewish democracy was established. And now, of course, um, the more recent law of July 2018, the so-called nation-state law, was recognition by the Israeli authorities that Jews today are a minority inside Israel and the occupied territories. Um, and they're a minority, actually, uh, uh, with regards to how Israel accounts the population. Remember, there's probably upwards of a million Israeli Jews who live in Europe and the United States and have not lived in Israel for decades. The way Israel counts its population is also some, somewhat of a state secret, one doesn't know. But assuming one takes its census at face value, Jews have become a minority today and will remain a minority for the foreseeable future, despite all the ethnic cleansing operations that the Israelis have uh, undertaken over the last uh, 140 years, they have not been able to establish an absolute Jewish demographic supremacy. As a result, the nation state law wanted to establish that Jews will continue to have colonial and racial privileges in Palestine, regardless of what their numbers would be. It doesn't matter if they are a minority, they would exclusively have the right to exclusive self-determination in the land of Israel, mind you, the law speaks about the land of Israel, not the state of Israel, and that uh, uh, basically this would be the historic Jewish homeland. So in that sense, that law 
also took care of any future demographic uh, decrease or a, a contraction of the Jewish population, uh, continuing the ongoing trend uh, to preserve uh, Jewish supremacy. So those who want to go back to the idea of a Jewish democracy, that never existed, or the extent to which there was uh, a, a Jewish demographic supremacy that for uh, supporters of Israel meant uh, a democracy for Jews, that was established constantly through ongoing expulsions and ongoing legislation of laws that grant, granted those Jews colonial and racial privileges. So in that sense, for me, I always make the comparison with South Africa. Um, uh, Israeli Jews on the left who claim that they support the establishment of a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, and um, liberal supporters of Israel in Britain or France or in the United States who claim to support a two-state solution um, would be the equivalent of white South Africans who would call on the South African apartheid government to withdraw from occupied Namibia and grant Namibia independence while maintaining white supremacy in South Africa. So these people are exactly the same way. They want Israel to leave the occupied territories while maintaining its, its right to be a Jewish supremacist racist state in its 1948 territories. It would be laughable of, if white South Africans uh, proposed that they are on the left um, because they called for the independence of Namibia, but the continuation of white supremacy and apartheid in South Africa. But somehow, Israeli Jews and their supporters around the world who put forth this proposition as something on the left and democratic um, get a lot of respectability in the mainstream media. Um, uh, it's quite ironic, I think. Yeah, yeah, they do. Joseph, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the use of language when talking about Palestine, um, especially in corporate media settings. You mentioned the terms canton, sovereignty, self-determination, uh, and of course terms like annexation and even settlements often mask the reality of what's being discussed uh, when it comes to Palestine. They're, you know, the settlements themselves are seen as an, you know, a sort of a natural growth of a so-called Jewish homeland. And of course, Judaism and Zionism is dangerously conflated in that context. Um, could you talk about the reality of Israeli settlement colonies and their colonial history as important military positions, as well as centers of population transfer and land seizure, and why it's important to bring all of that history that you've just discussed um, into the context uh, in, in terms of trying trying to understand really what, what Israel's... Um, goal really is for Palestinians? Um, I, th I think that is very important. The question of language is important. If, if you'd allow me, um, one of the things, one of, one of the terms that gets confused often and is used so imprecisely is the term the West Bank. Now, the West Bank itself, of course, as I've mentioned earlier, was a name the Jordanian authorities uh, uh, christened Central and Eastern Palestine with. Now, that name, of course, included the city of Jerusalem, East Jerusalem. Uh, as, at least as far as the Jordanian authorities were concerned. When Israel uh, occupied these territories after 67, it separated East Jerusalem from what it called the West Bank. Now, in addition, East Jerusalem over the years began to be expanded by the Israelis, or Jerusalem itself, which would, be, would become uh, a greater Jerusalem and then metropolitan Jerusalem, 
Uh, we don't have precise numbers because the Israelis haven't actually published them, but um, uh, some of the information that uh, is available to us tells us that this greater metropolitan Jerusalem may be as much as one-fourth, perhaps even one-third of the entire West Bank. So that is also much of that is part of what the Israelis call Area C. Now, in addition, you have 10% of the West Bank that is now lying behind the apartheid wall that the Israelis built in 2002. Much of that is also Area C. Not all of it, but much of it is also Area C. So now when the Israelis say that they want to annex 30% of the West Bank, it is unclear if this 30% would be outside the Jerusalem area that's been annexed already, which is already a quarter or a third of the West Bank, and outside of the 10% of the lands behind the apartheid wall, um, or inclusive of them, for example. So we know the Jordan Valley is allegedly part of that annexation, but since nothing has been published, it's unclear. So it could be actually, if it is, if it is outside of the purview of these territories, then you already have 30% of the West Bank, plus 10% behind the apartheid wall, plus 25 to 30% that is part of East Jerusalem, not to mention the a few percentage points of the block. So you actually have about 70% of the West Bank being annexed and 30% of small islands of Palestinian towns and villages that would remain as cantons, if you will, under a, a, a Jewish-Israeli Zionist uh, sovereignty. So the term West Bank, when it is bandied about without any specification, is not agreed upon by all parties and by international law, which considers the West Bank all the area occupied in 67. Right, uh, with the exception of East Jerusalem, which also it considers occupied as UN territory. So that's one one aspect that I wanted to mention. Now, of course, uh, remember the issue of uh, Jewish colonies is an old issue from the 19th century, uh, and and um, uh, this is why, for example, uh, Jewish philanthropists, European Jewish philanthropists, concerned about the exodus of Russian Jews, Russian and Polish Jews from the Russian Empire to Western Europe began a philanthropic effort to set up what they called at the time agricultural colonies for these Jews around the world. By agricultural colonies, they did not have, they were not Zionists, they did not, uh, they were not interested in setting up a Jewish state or anything of the sort. Indeed, um, uh, 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 Baron uh, de Hirsch, who set up in 1891 his important organization called the Jewish Colonization Association, would, uh, sub would subsidize the building of colonies, for agricultural colonies for Jews across the Americas, especially in Argentina, but also in North America. In, in New Jersey, for example, there was a very important uh, 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 colony called the Woodbine Colony, and then subsequently Woodbine Agricultural Colony for Jews that he had set up, in addition to uh, Lord Edmund de Rothschild, the French de Rothschild, who set up several agricultural colonies for Jewish settlers in Palestine in the 1880s and elsewhere. Some of the colonies were set up even in Turkey and in Syria. Indeed, all these colonies uh, would continue to be financed by the JCA, the Jewish Colonization Association, until 1924, when the Zionists took over the organization, renamed it the Palestine Jewish Colonization Association, and made and bought all these colonies, basically making sure that all future financing would go to Palestinian colonies. Many of the agricultural colon Jewish colonies in the United States, 
in Argentina and elsewhere would fail over the years with the failure of funding. Others would be transformed, although some of the schools would continue, like the, the Woodbine School and, until the 1970s, in fact. Uh, so what you have then, so the term colony did not mean settler colony for, with the purpose of establishing future Jewish sovereignty, but rather um, the issue of agricultural colonization was part and parcel actually of the anti-Semitic czarist line on what to do with Polish Jews it acquired in the late 18th century into the Russian Empire. And it was interested thinking that and through an anti-Semitic line that Jews did not engage in productive labor, they began to want to set up agricultural colonies for Jews across the Russian Empire. Something which is this anti-Semitic line is the line that the Zionists would adopt later on, would adopt the idea that Jews did not engage in productive labor and that agriculture and basically be proximity to the land would transform Jewish bodies and Jewish minds and normalize them like other populations. So they decided to transform the idea of agricultural colonies into agricultural colonial settlements that would become core of what would become a Jewish sovereign commonwealth in the future. So this is how that began. And indeed, they saw them set themselves as colonial settlers. Sometimes the Zionists would claim, no, 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 we, you know, we saw our, each other uh, and ourselves as going back, allegedly, to a, a, an ancient homeland. It's not true. In fact, um, uh, there was a Jewish legion who fought in the conquest of Palestine, composed mostly of Russian Jews, uh, that was uh, put together by uh, what would become, or who would become later, the, the leader of the revisionist uh, Zionist uh, uh, wing, uh, Vladimir Jabotinsky, who comes from uh, uh, Odessa, uh, from Russia, a, a colonial settlement itself that the Russians had built on uh, Ottoman territory. Um, so what he decides to do is bring about about 5,000 or so Russian and Jewish colonial settlers in Palestine, into a Jewish legion that would fight alongside the British army during World War I to conquer Palestine. It's very interesting because many of the white settler colonies that the British had sovereignty over, including Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, and South Africa, also sent their white soldiers to fight during World War I. And actually, they also sent some of their quote-unquote colored natives to fight as well. So as a result, the Jewish legion of, composed of these 5,000 Jewish colonial settlers would fight under the command of a New Zealand commander that was part and parcel of the, of the settler colonial force from New Zealand contributing to the occupation of Palestine and at the end of 1917. So it's not that they saw themselves as natives that were returning. Indeed, they saw themselves as colonial settlers and established themselves as part of these kinds of military military legions um, in support of the British mother country conquering yet another territory. Now, you are right, of course, many of these settlements were set up like colonial forts, not unlike how the British tried and the British colonial settlers tried to set themselves up in, for example, colonial Kenya. Uh, or in South Africa, or in Rhodesia, uh, um, exactly the same type of uh, 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 sort of colonial urban planning uh, took place at that time. And just to be clear on this, um, the Zionists, in fact, in the first two decades of the century before the British took over as the main sponsor of them, had learned many of the colonial methods from the Germans. The Germans had already, of course, been in occupation of Southwest Africa, and uh, of Eastern Africa, uh, Tanganyika and Cameroon, 
but also of all the parts of Poland they had acquired since the late 18th century and throughout the 19th century. And at that time, there was a German colonization association interested in um, uh, the settler colonization of a predominantly Polish area called Posen under German control. Posen had um, a, a small Jewish population, some of whom would work with the Germans as part of the colonization association and would learn from them. And indeed, um, uh, one, the early colonial Zionist official, Arthur Rupin, had uh, grown up in Posen and invited several German experts to sit on the Zionist movement's colonization of Palestine to uh, uh, benefit from the expertise of how Posen was being uh, uh, colonized by the Germans at that time. So you have different settler colonial models. Um, uh, so you, you have the German model, you have the British colonial model, and you even have some of the Russian model of how they colonized Central Asia. Uh, and you know uh, the, the Russians had invited also uh, uh, the Jewish population they acquired from Poland, uh, which they did not allow to live outside the Pale of Settlement, which is the area they colonized of Poland, except if they wanted to establish agricultural colonies in Central Asia, in the Muslim areas, and in the Crimea, etc. So there were, there were different models for how to set up the colonies. And this is, you know, and, and the model, of course, that, that ultimately the Zionists used was not also unlike the model used in uh, uh, Algeria. Indeed, Lord Rothschild initially uh, was um, interested in financing the agricultural colonies in Palestine in the 1880s and 1890s, precisely because, uh, you know, he was a wine producer in France, and France was hit by a pest that destroyed uh, the vineyards across France in the late 19th century, and he lost a lot of uh, his land. So he, in fact, uh, brought um, uh, French agricultural experts to Palestine to help the Jewish colonial uh, agriculturalists set up vineyards in uh, on the settler colonies, which would become the the base of today's Israel's uh, wine industry, all set up by Rothschild with agricultural experts from colonial Algeria and France for that purpose. Now, of course, um, for Rothschild, he wanted private settler colonies. The Zionists opted for kind of state-controlled uh, colonies because, of course, their quest was the establishment of sovereignty. Um, have I been too detailed? No, it's it's fascinating history that we never, <laughs> no. you know, hear. Um, and and I and I think it's really important for listeners and readers um, to to understand the, the the machinations of how Israel uh, was a settler colony, um, you know, at its inception and how it continues to be, and how kind of you know capitalism also is the oil and the gears um, for you know the Zionist economy. Yeah, but very um, much. So. I mean, I, I wanted to know one thing yeah. about numbers concerning Oslo and yeah. the number of settlers. Just to give an idea uh, to, to, to the uh, listeners, uh, in 1993, when the Oslo capitulation was signed by the PLO, uh, there was 281,000 Jewish colonial settlers in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. Uh, about 124,000 or so in the West Bank, about 5,000 in Gaza, and about 153,000 in Jerusalem. By 2009, as a result of the facilitation uh, of Oslo, of continued colonization, and the approval of uh, uh, the Palestinian uh, uh, Authority, 
which had been transformed from a liberation movement into uh, uh, an occupation council for the Israelis. Um, uh, by 2009, we have 490,000 colonial settlers, almost double the number of 1993 um, in the West Bank and Jerusalem, about 300,000 or so in the West Bank, about 200,000 in uh, East Jerusalem. By 2014, we have 400,000 Jewish colonial settlers in the West Bank and 350,000 colonial settlers in East Jerusalem, at least according to Israeli housing minister uh, Uri Ariel at the time. Today, in 2020, we have upwards of 1 million Jewish colonial settlers divided between the West Bank and East Jerusalem. So uh, uh, basically, uh, uh, over almost four times as many as existed in 1993 when the Oslo capitulation was signed. So this gives you just a bit of the scale of accelerated colonization uh, that had taken place since Oslo, uh, a far cry of the slow pace of colonization that had begun in 67 of these territories um, uh, until 1993. Uh, and mind you, uh, colonization that was begun by the labor government, who had already established about 30 colonial settlements by 1977, and then continued by Likud. Um, often, labor opponents of Likud claim it was Menachem Begin, the poor fellow, that actually began the colonization of the West Bank. Untrue, untrue. Of course, it was all done under the Labour government, both in the West Bank and in the Golan Heights and Gaza. And let's not forget about, you know, 16 Jewish settler colonies that the Israelis had in Sinai, right, including Yamit at that time. So um, every place they had gone, they set up a Jewish settler colonies. And, and weren't the uh, settlements in the uh, Jordan Valley that are now being discussed as, you know, a key central to this new annexation plan established by the Israeli Labour government in uh, 1960s after the takeover of the West Bank. And remember, of course, the Israelis had, even since 1948, not only demanded uh, that the entire uh, uh, west uh, uh, western shore of the Dead Sea be in their hands, which they only had, you know, uh, less than half of it on the southern side. They acquired all of it, of course, after the conquest of 67. But they had demanded to be given that back during the negotiations uh, of 48-49 under the uh, auspices of the United Nations Conciliation Commission, and would reiterate this, for example, during the Lausanne Conference. Well, finally, um, let's talk about the reasons uh, you feel that the so-called international community um, either aids Israel explicitly or just sits back and watches while these facts on the ground uh, become normalized time after time after time. Um, what do you think it will take for any major state to take Israel to task for its crimes over the past century? I mean, I don't know, by the international community, you, usually what is meant is Western countries. Um, Western countries are divided between colonial settlements or uh, mother colonial countries. Uh, so, um, I mean, for me, I, I don't think there's anything um, peculiar about uh, accommodation of Israel. We rarely ever hear any international condemnation of U.S. Uh, or Canadian policy with regards to Native Americans or First Nations, even though the encroachment um, on the land of Native Americans and First Nations in Canada continues apace. 
We don't see the United Nations intervene. We do not see uh, uh, the European Union intervene uh, at all. We don't see them intervene uh, in defense of uh, the continued losses of uh, the Aborigines, uh, 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 the Aboriginal population of uh, or peoples of, of uh, Australia, the Maori peoples of New Zealand, um, uh, who continue to be encroached upon uh, in terms of rights, uh, in, not to mention lands and 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 and, and uh, 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 property um, ongoing. We don't hear much of that at all uh, in terms of condemnation. We, in fact, if anything, we see assistance being given. Uh, the Australian government a few years ago, for example, um, would call upon. Uh, uh, all whites of South Africa who felt that South Africa was no longer a place they could prosper, that they would immediately be allowed to immigrate to Australia. This was not extended to non-white populations, for example. So we see colonial set settler solidarity with other colonial settlers. Um, the British government, I think, was extending some offer more recently to uh, Hong Kong separatists um, who were uh, uh, in violation of Chinese law, trying to separate Hong Kong and uh, uh, from uh, China, which is uh, the sovereign uh, government, um, uh, and in support of the former colonial power, meaning Britain, um, uh, offering them, you know, a possible uh, right to immigrate to Britain. Yeah, I, I believe they're talking about full citizenship, actually. Full citizenship, something that would be denied, say, to uh, 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 Palestinian immigrants uh, if yeah. they so chose, even though the calamity of the Palestinians is fully the responsibility of Britain for which it should be sued in international court and in local courts for the losses and the catastrophes it visited on the Palestinian people. Uh, so in that sense, um, I don't see the silence on Israel as uh, particularly uh, uh, out of, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of uh, the general policy uh, that these governments have uh, uh, followed. And, 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 you know, often I, I get a, a bit impatient with uh, liberal supporters of Palestinian rights who would say, how could uh, uh, the United States or Britain uh, or France support these policies in Israel? I don't understand because, of course, they have uh, uh, enacted these policies throughout uh, uh, their histories and, in some cases, their present. Uh, I've written an article about this saying, you know, when the U.S. or the U.K. supported the Balfour Declaration in 1917. You know, the U.S. Uh, uh, still, you know, was a, a country that supported and institutionalized segregation against its black citizens. It had not even given citizenship to its Native American population until 1924, right? In 1948, Britain continued to be uh, a, a colonial power. Um, and so even when it recognized Israel in 1950, it continued to sponsor its colonial settler population in Kenya, for example. The British were torturing and barbecuing Mau Mau uh, fighters in Kenya uh, until you know, the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, why would they not support Israeli torture of Palestinians and expulsions and uh, uh, theft of land, right? Uh, the U.S. continued to be officially uh, uh, an apartheid state until the late 1960s um, after it uh, uh, legislated the Civil Rights Acts in 1964 and 65. And even though, for example, miscegenation and, and, and uh, interracial marriage would still be uh, banned in many states until the early 70s. So um, for me, it is a bit odd for anyone to think that these alleged liberal democratic uh, governments, when they support Israeli policy, are out of step with their own policies. 
I think actually Israel reflects very well what they have always stood for and they continue to stand for. So unlike uh, 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 some liberals who appeal to the alleged liberal democratic uh, uh, nature, so you know, a, a, a so-called nature of these countries, um, I don't share these views. I think they actually have always been supportive of settler colonial theft and of racial segregation and racial supremacy for Europeans. Uh, the only difference is that in the case of Israel, they support the racial supremacy of European Jews as opposed to European Christians uh, who's, uh, whom they continue to support uh, uh, elsewhere and other settler the, uh, I was listening to the BBC Radio 4 this week and they were talking about the annexation plan and uh, in their usual sort of feigned attempt, uh, you know, pretense of uh, what they call balance, they invited on the Palestinian Authority's ambassador to London um, and he was asked about uh, annexation and he said Britain should know better. I'm paraphrasing him, but he said that Britain should know better because Britain pioneered the rules based international system. So they should be opposing this annexation. Indeed, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the British were instrumental also in setting up the League of Nations, which was basically yet another way to swindle countries uh, out of their own territories and sovereignty. Um, so uh, the United Nations, of course, which was a slightly better arrangement for the rest of the world, although it would not become better until decolonization in the 1960s when decolonized third world countries imposed for a very short period, for a decade, their will on the United Nations. At that time, the British and the Americans would oppose, especially the Americans, would oppose, for example, including in the United Nations Charter uh, the right of self-determination. Right. The Soviet Union at the time uh, uh, proposed this. The Americans opposed it completely, which is why the United Nations often have spoken of the principle of self-determination rather than the right of self-determination. Um, uh, in any case, so yes, uh, uh, the British indeed have been instrumental in a colonial swindle across uh, 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 the last uh, two and a half centuries, or perhaps four centuries, perhaps. We should go back to the Americas. Um, but indeed, uh, uh, if we're speaking only on what it did in Asia and Africa since the late 18th century. Uh, so yes, I, I do not expect much from uh, uh, British history in support of uh, 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 sort of putting the brakes on Israeli uh, annexation. Um, but I, I do support uh, the will of uh, many British citizens who oppose, uh, are opposed to this, uh, to the continued glorification of this colonial and racist history, and who would want to transform their country into a country that supports uh, justice and decolonization to question uh, uh, the, the continued glorification of these commitments and to change their government policy. Uh, with regards to this, um, uh, as opposed to having British and American leaders tell us that they all spent lovely times in uh, Jewish supremacist, Ashkenazi Jewish supremacist uh, 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 colonial settlements that are called kibbutzes, that we are told that uh, 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 Boris Johnson had spent some time in, um, uh, uh, you know, or, or, or even uh, uh, other American uh, leaders, leaders or contenders for the presidency until recently also used to revel in telling us that they also spent some time in kibbutzes. Let's name names here, Joseph. It's okay.
I shall uh, Bernie. Exactly. His his initials his initials yeah. are Bernie Sanders. But yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, so, so in that sense, that the commitment to the Ashkenazi Jewish supremacist institution of the kibbutz as uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, master race socialism is spoken of shamelessly by people who claim to be opposed to uh, racism today. You sure do have a long way to go. <laughs> yeah. Joseph Massad, we appreciate all of your incredible work uh, and for being with us on, on this exquisite interview today uh, for the Electronic Intifada Thank podcast. You. You're a professor of modern Arab politics and intellectual history at Columbia University in New York City. You're the author of many essential books, including most recently, Islam in Liberalism. Joseph, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.